to the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. everyone welcome back to the theology pit this is theology out of pittsburgh and not like a bottomless pit because you know what they say when you fall into a bottomless pit you die of dehydration but here in the theology pit of course you're not going to die of dehydration you are going to be very very well hydrated here so my name is uh samson kovach of course you can find me at samsonstick.com uh, if you're listening to this through itunes uh, you've obviously got the rss podcast uh, you can leave messages for me, comments on these uh, podcasts at uh, The Theology Pit on Facebook. Um, if you haven't subscribed to iTunes, please do. If you're just listening to this uh, you know, through your computer or uh, maybe through the website on your computer, on your uh, phone or whatever, subscribe to iTunes. Go there. Um, you know, Give me a... Uh, rating on there, whatever the rating is, and uh, maybe a maybe a comment. The nicer, the better, I would think. Um, you know that that just helps me out and you know moving stuff up the charts and getting this out to more people. You can also uh, donate any type of uh, donation you'd like to give. Buy me a cup of coffee, a couple bucks, and uh, I'd be very appreciative of that. I'm trying to get all this stuff, you know, out of the way here in the beginning, so I don't gotta talk about it later and try and fit it in at the end. I always forget. I always forget that thing. So today, we're going to be continuing on um, with our study of the Bible, our bibliology, as it's called technically. And um, we're going over the intentional errors that there are in the New Testament, what I call the intentional errors. Not all of them people consider to be intentional errors. I do. And hopefully you've heard why in these last podcasts. Um, with us uh, just going over the different why would somebody change things type stuff. And, you know, last week we looked at how, you know, the the Apostle Matthew, um, the gospel writer, he, you know, changed some stuff um, in, in his gospel while he was writing it. But what about, what about people who aren't um, the authors? I mean, there are certain decisions, certain words that are chosen that don't completely represent the, well, let's just say the original, like where, where it came from, where you're, where you're getting this quote from and where you're getting this idea from. Sometimes people change it for the sake of clarity, theologically. That was a question that we asked ourselves, you know, last week. And this time, I think we're going to have a little more evidence for it. By the way, we're back in Matthew. Slurping some coffee here. Okay, so we are looking at, you know, what's called the intentional errors. And I know that some people, maybe this is your first podcast you're listening to, and you're saying, wait a minute, there are no errors in the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. There aren't any errors in it whatsoever. Okay, error is kind of a strong word, and I understand that the connotation of it can be very negative. Uh, I'm using that in... In replacement of the word variant, um, maybe for the shock value, maybe because, you know, when you when you put these podcasts together and you put this stuff up, you're, you know, wanting to grab people's attention. And when you call it an error rather than a variant, it you know has a little more weight to it. But a, an error and a variant 
okay, the difference between the two, a variant would be something that, you know, you have a couple different manuscripts and they're worded differently. Okay. Uh, Like, um, for example, you know, if, if somebody left a word out or they maybe copy the same word twice or, you know, they left out an entire phrase of scripture. Okay. And that caused it to vary differently than, you know, the other manuscripts. And then those were copied and those were, you know, passed down. What I'm talking about when I say error is something a little more deliberate, something where somebody is changing it and they know it to be not wrong, but different from what it was. I guess wrong would be fine too, but they're, they're doing it for a point. They're doing it for a purpose. And this purpose can vary depending on what it is, but a lot of times it's, you know, theological. Now, like I said before, no major doctrine, um, sits on these variants. Okay. Because what's being talked about in these variants can be found other places. Um, these errors that were added in, um, these changes that were made, um, because these are deliberate, you can see a little bit more evidence for them. Um, maybe up to a certain time period, uh, like we were talking about with, you know, the, the, nor the sun aspect in, um, in Matthew, as opposed to in Mark from last week that, you know, Jesus didn't know when his, his coming was. And, you know, how that fits in the whole uh, concept of his deity. There are reasons why, you know, you don't see a lot of problems with this until, you know, the fourth century. And and that's, you know, understandable from that aspect. But it is a direct change in certain manuscripts. And I would call that an error and I would call that intentional an intentional error, not an unintentional, unintentional. It's almost like I want to stick variants in the unintentional world and errors in the intentional world. So if it was unintentionally done, I would say it was a variant. And if it was intentionally done, I would call it an error. The problem is though, is that when somebody commits the error and then it's copied repeatedly, the people copying it are not, uh, maybe they're not doing textual criticism, probably not, you know, depending on who they are, if they're just hired to, you know, copy it out, they really don't care that much about what the text says, they're not that detailed into it, they just want to get it copied and get it out there, so because of that, um, it becomes a variant, it becomes its own uh offshoot so to speak and people are copying that and it's it's nice because you can if if you were able to have all of the manuscripts in the world in front of you and you were able to make that family tree you could find out where that branch came from the time period when it when it shot off when it's most likely the time period is and it it helps you to get back to the original okay and that is um you know our our whole goal anyways okay we want to try to get back to the original because we want to know what the word of God actually says. And, you know, we'll talk about doctrine of preservation and, and, and those sort of things and the different philosophies later on, but an intentional error. And I think a, a big one, and this is one, another one that comes from Matthew and this is out of his gospel. This is, um, 
in the birth narrative. So Matthew in uh, chapter one, verse 23, he is talking about the birth of Christ. Okay. And of course, Matthew, as we said before, was writing to a Jewish audience. This is why he was probably more hesitant um, to talk about, you know, Jesus not being divine, kind of, you know, pushing the human aspect of it away just a little bit or just giving the emphasis away from the human aspect because um, the Jewish people who were there at the time, uh, they knew that he was a real person. They weren't, I don't want to say polluted with um, Greek philosophy, Stoic philosophy, Gnosticism, like the uh, the majority of the world was. Um, the Jewish people at that time, and even, even today, to a degree, are somewhat clicky. They have their beliefs, they have their understandings, so there's no reason for them to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, pollute what I believe that God has given me with other ideas, with other concepts. Um, I'm not going to get, you know, as pagan, as Greek, as, you know, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I'm just not going to be swayed by any of their arguments. I'm not going to adopt their philosophies is basically it. And that, and that was something that, you know, when you think about it and you think about people saying, well, you know, the whole concept of Jesus was just a conglomerate of a bunch of other uh, religions. You know, um, I, I took my kids the other day to the Natural History Museum and we were looking at the um, the Egypt exhibit. And, you know, you they had a wall of all of their gods there. And a lot of people said, oh, OK, see, from you know, uh, they, they took the story of Horus and they took the story of Isis and they put all this stuff together and they, they made up this, this God figure out of Jesus and, and everybody, you know, has basically the same story, those sort of things. Well, that's completely, uh, countercultural to the way the Jewish people were within a land. I mean, they were a people, a nation without a land. And even after the great diaspora in 70 AD, um, and they didn't get their land back till, was it 1946, 1949, somewhere around there. But they still stayed a nation. They still stayed a people because of their ideology, because of their um, their thought process. And at the time of Christ, with them being fiercely uh, monotheistic, um, and, and at the time of Christ also, they lost their... Well, their kingdom head, if you if you know the story of the Herods and, you know, what was going on there, um, when they lost that, Rome allowed them to still be governed, um, you know, by their own people. But eventually um, Rome appointed who it was because of certain uprisings and stuff like that. They weren't going to tolerate that. So this is why the Jewish people of the time had a real problem with um, the Herod who was sitting on the throne at the, at the time the New Testament was written um, in, the, in the gospel narratives because he was basically, you know, this half-Jew Edomite, you know, he, he you know, rebuilt the temple. It's, you know, he, he was not a very nice person. Um, he was paranoid uh, killing his children because he didn't want them uh, usurping him or killing him off and taking his throne. 
Um, you know, one of his wives, uh, Mary, was loved by the people and she was beautiful and she was forced to be married to this monster and people supported her but not him and the the way that they showed their support for her was that they would name their daughters after her mary and this is why when you read the new testament you you see that it's like every other woman is named mary well at that time that was that was the reason for it and i i mean herod was not the best jew he didn't he wasn't orthodox as you would say uh people said that it was i mean he would eat pork and people would even say that it was safer to be herod's pig than to be his his son than to be his child so you have these people that have this mindset of we are god's chosen people who follow the lord even even if we technically have our own land but we don't have our own uh, our own king, even though he's he's like this false king that is that is sitting there. Um, whenever all this stuff happened, uh, you know this this is what caused the um, let's, we could say the religious split in um, like 165 BC after the Maccabean revolt or yeah, revolt. Listen to me talk revolt. Um, you know against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth and you know, the consecration of the temple and all that stuff. Well, you had some people uh, that, well, I shouldn't say some people. Um, you had the religious group of the time. Okay. And it was like, they were like one group and they were the ones who said, Hey, it's okay. You know, for us to fight back on the Sabbath day. I don't know if I went over that story or not, but uh, I'm not going to get into the details of it now. That's found in um, that Jesus kind of uses against them in uh, the Gospel of Mark. I think in chapter chapter two or three. But um, when that happened, because of the abomination that caused desolation, um, and especially with the Romans coming in, and you know the rebuilding of the temple, and just you know all, all the stuff that happened, you had one group that just completely separated themselves. And that was the Essenes. Okay. They were the ones that, you know, lived in the, in the Qumran sect, um, the, by the dead sea, they wrote the dead sea scrolls that we found that we know more about. Uh, they wanted to be the, the most pure. Uh, they were extremely apocalyptic. Um, they saw this as the end of the world. They said that, you know, uh, the Lord must be coming in judgment and in power because l- look at everything that's that's happened. We can't even sacrifice in our own temple anymore. We can't we can't do anything. And they used a particular hermeneutic that I'm going to talk about today, um, known as Pesher, where when they read scripture, they interpret it that everything that was written was written about them and to them and is culminating in them. Uh, you see this a lot today in, I don't want to say so much evangelicals, um, but in evangelical Christianity and I mean, broadly evangelical, which means that, you know, Baptists, more, um, Pentecostals, more along lines, think of the left behind series and people that would follow a dispensational eschatology 
And if those words don't make sense to you, don't worry about it. Um, eschatology is a study of the end times. But if you understand the Left Behind series comment, just just think about that. People that use you know newspaper eschatology, eschatology again, study of the end times. So where they would pick up the newspaper and the Bible. And they would read it and say, see, look, the Bible even predicted that these things are going to happen. Uh, Jack Van Impey, his um, his ministry, very big on that. Uh, I think Benny Hinn to a degree. But it was, you know, a, a point where this is what helped aid in Israel, you know, reclaiming its land, getting some being recognized by um, the United Nations in the 1940s for having it because, their view is that, you know, Israel has to be a nation again because, you know, God deals with God. The church and Israel are separate and God deals with them separately, but they have to have their own land. So, um, you know, all of these prophecies can then come about and they can be the Jews can be gathered in that area. And, you know, like a third of them are wiped out or two thirds of them are wiped out. And, you know, the blood flowing up to the bridles of the horses mouths and everything that you, you see in, in revelation that they're taking, you know, in a wooden literal format. Well, this is this particular hermeneutic is called Pesher. And this is what, um, the Essene community did. Um, and because that they, you know, abstained from, uh, alcohol, they abstained from sex, even within marriage. They lived in a, a sexless marriage. They didn't reproduce. One of the reasons why they died out uh, so fast and sort of like the, um, I almost want to say the Harmonites in uh, Western Pennsylvania that built the towns around here, around this area. Uh, Harmony would be one of them, uh, economy. But um, when, when you have that mentality of this whole understanding and this is kind of, you know, whispering of, you know, maybe Jesus was of the scene community and, you know, they were kind of looking for this, this whole like virgin understanding and all this stuff. But then you had another group and they were called the uh, Sadducees and the Sadducees were then like, hey, when in Rome, let's do as the Romans do. OK, and so they were the ones who were very tied in with um, the temple, the temple service, the temple tax, everything in their lives revolves around the temple and the workings of the temple, the sacrificial order, those sort of things. So they were very um, involved in anything that went on in the temple. They were the Jewish leaders that, you know, stuck that way. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law. They were partly involved with the what was going on in the temple, but they were more on the outskirts. Think of them more as the the bigger group, the evangelicals, the ones who were the the teachers, the ones who taught in the synagogues all around. Um, they were the ones who were, I don't want to say more orth, more orthodox from our standard than the Sadducees. Um, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They were looking forward to the resurrection where the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection because they were sad, you see. ba bunch. I, I wish I put a uh, rim shot in there. Uh, but anyways, bad joke, I know. But hey, it'll help you remember it. So, you know, you had these three different communities. Now, with a type of Pesher hermeneutic, Sorry, my nose is running again. I keep sniffling. Um, 
with a Pesher hermeneutic, what you're generally going to be doing is you're going to be looking through scripture and you're going to see how this applies to you. Now, people say that Jesus used a Pesher hermeneutic and rightly so. Um, if you in fact are the son of God that the prophets were foretelling the coming of and that, you know, things were being uh, revealed through you. Well then yes, this hermeneutic is the one that you're supposed to use um, because it is written for you is written about you. And to some degree, um, Matthew is using this hermeneutic and some, I would say that this would be an acceptable hermeneutic for Matthew to use when um, reaching the Jews, but it would it would put him in this Essene camp, which would lend more validity to the accusations of you know Mary being an Essene. Okay, but she would be considered a bad Essene because if virginity is what you extol, but yet you have a child, namely Jesus, um, then, you know, you would be seen as someone that's a a vow breaker, so to speak, um, in scripture, whenever you see Jesus referred to as the son of Mary, it's a derogatory name. It's a pejorative, um, because it's like, oh yeah, you're the, the son of the one who's supposed to be a virgin, uh, type thing. And so, I'm saying all this to then get to, you know, this, this section in Matthew here, kind of, you know, build it up where, um, Matthew, uh, one says, look, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now we have, you know, this understanding of, okay, he's looking back to Isaiah in order to say this. And a lot of people are thinking, well, I don't see a real big problem with this because um, my translation, when I go back to Isaiah, it, it says that. Why did you just spend 20 minutes or so talking about stuff in, in interpretation when I, I, I don't see the, I don't see the variant. I don't see the error here. I don't see the problem. I pulled up in front of me um and, and you can go to Bible Gateway and, and look at all these um, parallels. I have five parallels in front of me, okay? And these parallels, these are just all different versions of the Bible sitting next to me with Isaiah 14 sitting in front of me. In the New Testament, or the, um, the New International Version of um, Isaiah 7:14, it reads this way. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and will call him Emmanuel. The King James Version says, Therefore, the Lord himself shall behold a son, shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, even the Message Bible, which, and when we get to different uh, stylistic um, understanding of, of interpretation. The message is more basically a commentary in, in my opinion. Um, but even, even, even this commentary, there's someone who's saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, translate this in my own tongue and what I think. So it even says, um, uh, so the master is going to give you a sign. Watch for this. A girl who is presently a virgin will get pregnant. She'll bear a son and, 
and name him Emmanuel, God with us. Um, the English Standard Version. Um, this is a version that is the favorited version of a lot of evangelicals today, uh, Presbyterians. It's it's a it's a good translation. I mean, there's nothing really wrong with it. I think it's 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 smoother than than most. Um, it reads in Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah seven fourteen in the New American Standard Bible which is the Bible that's used by, um, uh, it's, it's, it's like a study Bible. In my opinion, it's used by people that really want to, um, get into the text and study because usually it's written very stilted. It's almost trying to be like word for word. So it, it can be tough, but it's another good translation. Um, uh, it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. So what's my problem? Why am I putting this in intentional errors when I'm saying, hey, here's what Matthew says about what Isaiah says. And then I go to Isaiah and I read, you know, five of the more popular translations and say, okay, here's what they say. All right. And if you're reading along with me here and you're looking in your Bible and you're like, hey, I don't see what the problem is. Like, what's your, what's your deal with this? Well, the problem comes in, in the use of the word virgin. Whenever I look this up, and I've, I've talked about this in other podcasts, when I go to the Old Testament, I like to use my Jewish study Bible that I have because of the, the way that they approach it. They're not approaching it with Christian eyes. And I Whenever you're reading the Old Testament, I do believe that you need to look at it with Christian eyes, with Christian philosophy, with Christian theology, understanding the fulfillment of Christ in it to, to see what it's saying. But I also want to know what others tend to think. And so when I grab my Jewish study Bible here and I read from you um, verse uh, uh, 14... 714 in Isaiah, it says, Assuredly, my Lord will give you a sign of his own accord. Look, the young woman is with child and about to give birth to a son. Let her name him Emmanuel. The young woman. Why wouldn't they translate it virgin? Why do all of these other translations here have the word virgin in it? How does that even make sense? I mean, where, where did that get changed? Okay. Is it because of Matthew? Did he do that again? Did he change that again? In the notes here, it says um, on, on the, the concept of young woman, because it, it deals with this. Um, and it says that young woman, okay, the Hebrew word is Alma. The Septuagint translates as virgin. Now, the Septuagint was a group of, and, and this is what I'm going to explain to you is, in my opinion, part lore and part fact. I think that they get kind of mixed up because Septuagint means 70. There were 70 um, Jewish translators and 
that number might not be accurate. There may have been 72. There may have been around. It's just an approximation. Okay. The abbreviation for it is LXX for 70. And a couple years before, I want to say a couple years, it may sound weird. Um, there was a, a, an emperor, a Greek emperor before the time of Christ, maybe a hundred years before or so who wanted a copy of the Hebrew Bible in Greek so he could put it in his collection. Um, He had a lot of uh, religious writings, and he wanted a a copy of what the Hebrews had, also uh, what our Old Testament is. So he then commissioned this to take place, but he you know, translate into Greek. So they got together and, you know, the, the details of it, like, you know, and how, how fast it was done and those sort of things, I think that's kind of lore. But point being is that they translated it and the translation that they came up with is the translation that was used by the writers of the New Testament. And they seem to be quoting it and seemed to be reading it. So it was popular at the time. It was popular even to Jewish people. If Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience and he's using the word virgin there, um, you know, it's, it's that it was the popular. There's even a theory out there that um, whenever Jesus spoke and he preached, he did it in Greek, which is why the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, a lot of people say, no, 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 he spoke Aramaic or he spoke, um, you know, Hebrew or something. And, I mean, there's there's reasons why I don't I, I don't agree with that. It's not a deal breaker with me, though. You know, if I'm if I'm shown that, no, 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 he definitely spoke Arabic. They were just writing in Greek, but uh, whatever. It, I, it's, it's really not a hill that I'll fight and die on. I'll just say my own personal opinion. He spoke Greek. Um, in doing so, it lends more credibility to um, the use of the Septuagint within the uh, within the New Testament here. So the the note goes on to say, so that's what the Septuagint is. So the note goes on to say that um, the Septuagint translates as virgin, uh, leading ancient and medieval Christians to connect this verse with the New Testament figure of Mary. All modern scholars, however, agree that the Hebrew merely denotes a young woman of marriable age, whether married or unmarried, whether a virgin or not. Um, So... It, they're saying that it could mean virgin, doesn't necessarily have to. Um, whenever, and I've heard it explained like this too, whenever you're speaking of a young woman at that time and you're not referring to her as a virgin or it's not implied that she's a virgin, then you're more or less calling her a slut and it's an insult. So the appropriate thing would be to call her you know, a virgin in the new English translation that I use my study Bible. it translates Isaiah seven as young woman. It stays with what the Hebrew is saying. It's not, it's not changing it to virgin. So young woman seems to be the best understanding of that translation. Matthew I don't think 
did an intentional error of saying, I'm going to bring out the concept of virgin from this to show that, you know, the, the virgin birth had taken place, anything like that. I don't think that he would need to anyways. I don't, I don't think that was the thing. But in using the Septuagint, I think that the Septuagint, if you want to call this an intentional error, is where the intentional error lies. The root of it lies there with the Jewish people and their translation of it. Um, you know, the nuanced language of Koine Greek allows for the difference between um, young woman and uh, virgin. So I think that this is not the fault of Matthew like last time, you know, when, when we talked about it, uh, that this is what he was grabbing from the Septuagint. Now, the note here in, um, in my uh, Bible about um, young woman uh, is just you know, a slighted just a little bit. It's not, I'll read it to you here. It says traditionally virgin because this verse from Isaiah is quoted in Matthew one twenty three is connected with Jesus's birth. The Isaiah passage has been regarded since the earliest Christian times as a prophecy of Christ's birth. Now that goes against what the Hebrew study notes say that it was, you know, the medieval um, Christians and, you know, leading into that time. And, and I don't think so, because if that was the case, then you would see variants for um, Matthew and Isaiah all over the place. But you don't. Um, and you find that in the uh, in in the Septuagint. Um, lost my place here. Um, much debate has taken place over the best way to translate this Hebrew term, although ultimately one's view of the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ is unaffected. Though the, the Hebrew word used is Alma can sometimes refer to a woman who is a virgin. It does not carry this meaning inherently. The word is simply the feminine form of, uh, the corresponding masculine noun, uh, Elem for young man. The Arabic and Ugaric, uh, I think I'm, I hope I'm saying that right, Ugaritic, um, cognate, cognate terms are both used of women who are not virgins. The, sorry, this is small print and I'm kind of far away from it. The word seems to pertain to age, not sexual experience, and would normally be translated young woman. The Septuagint translators who later translated the book of Isaiah into Greek sometime between the 2nd and 1st century BC, however, rendered the Hebrew term by the more specific Greek word parthenos, which does mean virgin in a technical sense. This is the Greek term that also appears in the citation of Isaiah 7.14 in Matthew 1.23. Therefore, regardless of the meaning of the term in the Old Testament context, in the New Testament Matthew's usage of the Greek term uh, parthenos, clearly indicates that from his perspective, a virgin birth has taken place. Okay. So that is kind of where this, this tension lies. So in Isaiah, you, if you have a Bible that translates it as virgin, that's okay because it's sticking with the Septuagint. If you have it as young woman, that's fine. It, it's speaking more, you know, broadly of what, Isaiah was saying, but it doesn't affect 
the virgin birth understanding. And if we interpret the Old Testament with the New, well then, virgin is the proper way to go. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right, so um, we're going to stay in Matthew again because he seems to have all kinds of problems anyways. And remember the Pesher hermeneutic that we that we talked about, you know, with this being fulfilled within us. So he was looking back at stuff like that and, you know, uh, he knew his Old Testament, especially Isaiah. Isaiah is a big book um, with the Hebrew people. And so he saw that whole virgin thing. He knew of the virgin birth. He put two and two together and said, hey, look at this. Um, so another aspect that I want to look at of Matthew's writing here is in um, chapter two, uh, verse 17 and 18, where he talks about the prophet Jeremiah uh, being fulfilled, his prophecy being fulfilled. And it, this is the time, um, the, the escape to Egypt and everything. Um, he, Herod um, sent men to kill all the children in Bethlehem. Okay, um, from under, from two and under, ages two and under, and so all of these children, you know, have have been killed, and um, verse seventeen says this. Um, uh, well, I'll go back to sixteen and just read that read that part here. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became enraged. He sent uh, men to kill all the children in Bethlehem and throughout the surrounding region from the age of two and under, according to the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken by, the, by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud wailing, Rachel weeping for her children. She did not want to be comforted because they were gone. Okay, so the the problem that I have with this, because, you know, it, again, if you go back into the Old Testament and you read, okay, he's quoting Jeremiah. He's quoting Jeremiah 31.15. What does Jeremiah 31.15 say? It says, um, thus saith the Lord, a cry is heard in Ramah, wailing, bitter weeping, uh, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children uh, who are gone. Okay, that's from my uh, Jewish study Bible. Um, from my net Bible, it's reading, I just, I just lost it. My eyes, my eyes. Uh, the Lord says a sound is heard in Ramah, a sound of crying and bitter grief. It is the sound of Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are gone. So, you know, you listen to that, you look at that, you read that and you say, oh, okay, they say the same thing. I mean, I haven't done it, but I'm sure that, you know, if I just search did a did a quick bible gateway search for that um let me do that right now for you um i'll pull all this up all right so i pulled it up and i just looked at you know the five translations that we talked about earlier new Inter the new international version king james version message english standard new american standard we looked at our 
Hebrew Study Bible and the Net Translation. They all say the same thing. Okay, so why is this a problem? Why do I even consider this an error? It doesn't seem like an intentional error at all. It's difficult to find. Well, the intentional error seems to be with Matthew again, in, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others, um, because what Matthew says in uh, chapter 2, verse 17 is after this occurred, you know, um, all these children that were killed, it says, then what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Well, according to the Old Testament, it had already been fulfilled. It was already a fulfillment. Something I didn't uh, bring up, you know, the last uh, half hour there about um, Isaiah was that that prophecy was also already fulfilled. You know, the woman, the young woman did conceive and the prophecy was, you know, before the child knows, pretty much knows the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, like these certain things will happen. Um, and and you know, people have argued over, well, what exactly was Isaiah's intent there? Was it that the woman would conceive? Was it that the child would be born? Was it that he would be a son? Was it that, um, you know, he would know good or evil? Like, you know, what's when when is that timeline that, you know, the near, the far, the very far, like what, what's going on with it? And maybe there were, you know, many dimensions to it. But, um you know, it, it was something that was seen as fulfilled. So in order for Matthew to see it as fulfilled again, it was very pressure because he's looking at it as in his time, a, a pressure hermeneutic. And again, we have another pressure hermeneutic that's, that's going on here because in Jeremiah, um, that would have been fulfilled. That would have been understood. Um, the notes in my Hebrew study Bible, um, reads as so, and I think it, it, you know, um, sheds a, a bit of light on this. Um, it says that the portrayal of Israel as Rachel weeping for her lost children draws upon the tragic tradition of Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, who died while giving birth to Benjamin. Although Genesis uh, 35, 16 through 21 places her tomb on the road to Bethlehem, where the current structure stands. First Samuel 10, 2 suggests that her tomb was on the road to Ramah near modern Ramallah, Ramallah. The present text portrays Rachel weeping not for herself, but for her children who have gone into exile, according to uh, 41 and 4. The Babylonians assembled the Judeans destined for exile to Babylon at Ramah. The portrayal of Rachel weeping and bereft of children is reversed in Isaiah chapter 54, which employs the, the metaphor of a mother whose children are restored. Jacob deliberately buried Rachel by the road because he knew that his descendants would pass by when they went into exile. She would then weep and intercede for their return. Okay, and that's, and that's an interesting... Um, understanding and interpretation too when whenever if we were to ever talk about veneration of the saints and um you know the the saints who've gone on before us or praying and making intercession for us also and you know where that comes from and everything totally different theology pit though an interesting one but but a different one but the point here is that um this has already taken place because jeremiah prophesied that and it happened it came to place, it, you know, they were gathered, you know, in Ramah and the whole thing that's, that's gone on. So what's Matthew talking about here? Um, even my notes in the net Bible, uh, read as 
read is so. I mean, it, it pretty much almost exactly what's in the, the Hebrew here. The Hebrew study Bible it says Ramah is a town in Benjamin, approximately five miles north of Jerusalem. It was on the road between Bethel and Bethlehem. Traditionally, Rachel's tomb was located near there at a place called Zelza. And that's from 1 Samuel 10.2, which is the same um, scripture address that the, um, uh, the Hebrew Bible gives us. Rachel was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin and was very concerned about having children because she was barren and went to great lengths to have them. She was the grandmother of Ephraim and Manasseh, which were the two of the major tribes in northern Israel. Here, Rachel is viewed metaphorically as weeping for her children, the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh, who had been carried away into captivity in 722 B.C. Okay, so 700 years before Matthew sees the fulfillment of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled. So where is Matthew getting this from? Why is Matthew saying this? Why is he, you know, kind of, of bringing this out? Why is he putting this prophecy where it's at? And I think it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I think that's a very good question. Um, but there really, in my opinion, is no true answer to that. Other than to say that, the Pesher hermeneutic is what the Holy Spirit is leading Matthew to use in order to see this as, you know, the fulfillment of the prophecy uh, with Christ, that, that prophecy can have these, you know, many different levels. So if, if this Pesher hermeneutic is legitimate for Matthew to use, why isn't it legitimate for anyone else to use? I mean, why couldn't I just go through and, you know, pick something out and then, force it on the scripture. And I think that that's where the sticking point is with a lot of us. Whenever you're doing hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation, and you're trying to look at, okay, how am I to interpret the Bible? And there, there's, I mean, one way of doing it is to allow the Bible to interpret itself, but then to then take those structures, to take that method and say, okay, I can then use this method also. Usually, what's done with Bible interpretation is what's known as a historical literary grammatical hermeneutic, which means you're looking at, you know, what did it mean back then? What did it mean to the original audience? What's the author trying to say? Um, how does that compare to other scripture, the timeless principle, you extract it, go through the homiletical process. And then, you know, what the timeless principle is, that's what you apply to your life. Um, whenever you start going through and saying, okay, scripture was written directly for me, about me and to me, and it's being fulfilled in me. I think that's where people get in trouble. And I think that Matthew was able to do that because Christ is the center focus. And so by Christ being the center focus, it then enables him to go through the old Testament and, and the Holy spirit can bring those things out for him. I mean, maybe you say, hey, you're really sidestepping that, but honestly, that's the best answer that I can give because um, from, you know, my, my, my discipline as uh, someone who studies scripture, it's a technique that I wouldn't use. It's a interpretive method that I wouldn't use ever. Um, I would have, well, I shouldn't say ever, but I say I would have an extremely hard time 
saying that, you know, this is written for me for the present time. And I know that some people are saying, well, what about the end times and stuff? Isn't that written to us? And, you know, when we get into eschatology, we'll discuss that further. But it's just another, um, you know, example of intentional error that a lot of people don't mention. This isn't an intentional error that is brought up that people, you know, really stomp their feet on. It's not not that big of a big of a thing. Now, one last intentional error I want to talk about is liturgical additions. Oh, sorry about that. Liturgical additions. This is where the liturgy of the church service, and if you're not in a, a mainline church, if you're not in a liturgical worship service, you go to what's called a free uh, church service. Uh, the style is a little more open. You still have a structure. Everybody does. But your um, structure is not a quote-unquote scripted one. There, there is not a call and response. In a liturgy, a liturgy can't be done by itself. There has to be a congregation and there has to be a pastor or priest where um, a free worship service, uh, quite honestly, nobody has to be there. You can do that by yourself. There, There is no response that is necessary from the congregation. It's It's less corporate worship in that sense. Liturgical is much more corporate. Um, liturgical worship is what we see in the Old Testament. It's what we see in the New Testament. It's what we see uh, Christ doing in the gospel narratives. And that's how we can deduce a lot of the things um, hermeneutically, you know, as we're interpreting scripture because of the liturgies that are being used at the time, liturgical worship. One of them that's um, interesting is again in Matthew, and Matthew seems to, you know, do this a lot. I don't mean to pick on Matthew so much, but these are a lot of good examples, you know, that are coming out so you can kind of understand what we're talking about. But, you know, please keep in mind that none of these have really changed any essential doctrine. Nothing. I mean, Jesus still rose from the dead. That's not an error. Like, n- there is no, you know, variant throughout history of that at all. That's that's a, a solid thing. So um, if you want to go to Matthew um, chapter 6, verse 13, um, this is where we're going to look at what's called the, um, the, the longer ending of the Lord's Prayer. And you have, remember, Luke and Matthew written, you know, at the same time, roughly, you know. So we're going to check out both of them in, uh, in, in what they're saying whenever it comes to uh, the Lord's Prayer. So when we're saying the Lord's Prayer, or we're reading the Lord's Prayer, because in in some traditions, of course, you know, the Lord's Prayer is not is not said. Uh, I don't know why. Um, it's you know, people say don't you know, vain repetitions and going on babbling like the pagans. But um, you know, if you look at um, Luke chapter eleven, uh, verse two, he says very clearly. So Jesus said to them, "When you pray, say." Okay, so when you're praying, Jesus is, I'm not saying this, Jesus said, when you say, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's not, that's not me. So if you're in a church and when they pray, they don't, and you ask them what, and they say, well, we never say the Lord's Prayer because of vain repetition. Well, what do you do with that verse? Okay, that's, that's kind of a sticking point for me. Why are you omitting that from your worship service? That's a, that's a different pit, different theology pit with, um, uh, the understanding of worship. But um, so in Matthew, especially in the King James Version, you have this, you know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
Amen. Some say forever and ever. Amen. Um, but this for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Okay. In Luke, it, um, it cuts off even, you know, even sooner than just that aspect of it. It, it cuts off. Do not, uh, and do not lead us into temptation. There is no, uh, but deliver us from evil in Luke because the earliest manuscripts of Luke don't have that part in there. Um, some of them, some manuscripts will have it in because they're trying to just, you know, keep it closer, include it with Matthew. Um, and, and you have to ask yourself, well, why is that in there? Like, why, why is that such a big deal that there's such a, a variant here with this? Well, again, liturgies are said over and over. It is a, uh, congregational worship. So people in the congregation know this stuff. If you're a scribe that's, you know, copying this out and, you know, you've said every day of your life that you've been, you know, in worship, you know, the Lord's prayer. And you said for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And you get to that, but you find you're, you're copying out a manuscript that doesn't have it in it. And you're thinking, wait a minute. Um, I say that every day. I know my dad said that every day and his dad said that every day. And I'm pretty sure Peter said that every day because you got to think of how close you are to the, the apostles. So they might just add it in. It just works its way in. Now, is it something that comes out of just nowhere? No, this actually comes out of uh, first Chronicles uh, chapter 29, verse 11 in my Hebrew Bible. Um, it says, I'll, I'll go back to verse 10 it says, David blessed the Lord in front of all the assemblage um, David said, and so this is showing that this is in a, a worship um, uh, structure. Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father from eternity uh, to eternity. Yours, Lord, the greatness, might, splendor, triumph, and majesty. Yes, all that is in heaven and on earth to you, Lord, belong kingship and preeminence above all. So what they're doing is just taking that and saying that is the kingdom and the power and the glory. All three of those things are are mentioned in that list. And, you know, and just saying that, you know, it, this is yours forever for all time. Amen. And it just, you know, adds that bit in, rounds that out, helps out with um, the liturgical service, the praise. Um, if not everybody had a Bible because of how expensive they were and there wasn't mass production, it's not like today. I mean, I have a bunch of Bibles sitting in front of me and online. I have five in front of me. Um, so people didn't have that. So if you can get them to memorize through repetition, through things like the Lord's Supper, through things like baptism, through, you know, any any religious rites that they can memorize the gospel and the gospel story and the narrative and the truths about God, the better. And so this is an example of an intentional error being put in there just because it might not be something where it was so like, you know, oh, I need to add this in because people won't know. It's something that was going on and on and on. It's like, you know, did people understand the concept of the resurrection and the concept of Christ being a sacrifice for us. Well, yeah, that's what the Lord's Supper was all about. That was, you know, that first institution that was set in the place along with baptism. So people understood whenever they were breaking bread that that was the body of Christ and that the cup was the blood of Christ. There was no debate about that before any of the New Testament was written. That was going on. Um, their understanding of it was in a creedal form, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, you know, Paul records that in there. It's, it's not in his wording. It's not in his um, use of language. 
Um, so it's it's obviously something that was you know, predating Paul. Dr. Gary Habermas um, takes that back to about two years after the crucifixion that that was uh, and the resurrection that that was going around being said. So in my uh, in my net Bible, it says, oh, Lord, you are. Uh, great, mighty, majestic, magnificent, glorious, and sovereign over all the sky and the earth. You have dominion and exalt yourself as ruler of all. You are the source of wealth and honor. You rule over all. You possess strength and might to magnify and give strength to all. So, you know, and then it says, now our God, we give thanks to you and praise your majestic name. So this goes right along um, with the prayer that Christ taught the disciples to pray. So the, the Lord's prayer, as it's called, and, you know, like I said, I don't you know, fault Matthew for not having that in there. And I don't fault the scribes for putting that in. It doesn't change anything. There is no theological changes that have taken place. So in summary here, and, and, and what we've looked at with the intentional errors and the unintentional errors, the unintentional errors make up over 99% and they make no theological difference whatsoever. The intentional errors that are less than 1%, we look at, they make no theological difference whatsoever. Um, you know, even even ones that might kind of look like they are, like in, um, you know, in, in Romans, I think it's five, where the word is echomen, and it can either mean let us have or, you know, we have uh, when it comes to, you know, we have peace with, with God, you know, or let us have peace with God. One is a petition, the other is a, a statement. Uh, nobody ever translates it as a petition. Everybody's always translated that way, even though the spelling indicates a different thing. But, but that's a that's a homophony. That's something that was able to be heard. But still, that doesn't change anything. Um, even even if it was let us, which it it's not, because nobody's ever translated it like that, transmitted it like that by by copying it. Yes, translated it like that. No. So you can be sure. Absolutely, that the Bible that you pick up, if it's translated well, and I have to say that, is most definitely what the apostles wrote. What the New Testament, the New Testament is the golden standard of ancient literature. It is trustworthy, and this is what they mean. This is what they say. Even atheists slash agnostics like uh, Bart Ehrman has said that whoever wrote the Gospel of John, and, and we'll get to authorship later, whoever wrote the Gospel of John, he certainly thought that Jesus was God. So um, the message is there. The wording is there. Everything's there. But a big question we have to start asking ourselves now is, hey, do we even have the right books? Okay, that's great that we can do this with the New Testament. We can be confident that we have the right words and a good translation. And we'll talk about translations also and the different types and which ones I think are better than than others. But they can be trusted and a good translation can be trusted. So we know what the words are. Do we have the right books? And I think that that might be where we need to go next to find out the canonicity because that'll help us look at the canonicity of uh, the Old Testament as well. So thank you very much for listening. And now it's definitely time to close down the pit. <laughs>